and welcome to the seventh season of Scene to Song, a musical theater podcast for people who love to discuss, critique, and celebrate musicals as a literary art form. I'm your host, Shoshana Greenberg, and each episode I'll bring on a guest to talk about a musical, musical theater writer, or a topic or trend in musical theater. My guest today is Christopher Culp. Chris is an educator and trainer who currently works full-time as a trainer and curriculum developer for a capacity-building organization that focuses on sexual and reproductive health, while also adjunct teaching music and human sexuality courses throughout Buffalo. He also teaches clarinet lessons and chamber groups at a local nonprofit, and you may find him teaching, performing, or presenting at a conference. We're going to talk today about the Alan Menken and Howard Ashman musical, Little Shop of Horrors. Hey, Chris, I'm so excited to have you back on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here and talk with you. Well, we'll start with uh, a few questions to get to know you again. Is there a classic show you saw recently for the first time? And what was your experience with it? So I got to go see Merrily We Roll Along, which I believe is kind of classic or infamous in some ways. And I, it was one of those where I didn't really want to listen to it very much because I, I didn't think I would get it unless I saw it and how it, the backwards stuff. Um, and I was really struck. I think, I mean, the performances were amazing. Um, I, I'm a, always kind of a sucker for a really good overture and it's a really good overture, I think. Um, and I don't, I haven't had the time to do comparisons, but I was struck by how much the show not only was about friendship, or at least this version, this uh, production, but also uh, reproductive labor. A mm. lot of stuff about reproductive labor, especially, um, and now I'm gonna forget all their names, The one of the, the composer's wife and being the breadwinner, mm. and then the newscast having like, Roe v. Wade was just passed and everybody in the audience groaned because we're like, yeah, and it just got overturned, thanks. Oh, wow. So I, I thought it was really amazing, and I'm glad that it's doing well. What is the last great musical you saw? I mean, this is where I'm just going to sound like I'm a Sondheim junkie, but <laughs> I got to see Here We Are, and I saw it for the second time. Oh, nice. I'm not sure if it's one that's going to be performed very often um, just because of its existentialist and surrealist, <laughs> but those are two things that are really up my alley. I think it's some of the best wordplay I really enjoy, I mean, it's, it's in the status of like Sondheim unfinished and what does that mean? But I, the performance was amazing. Um, I can't wait for the cast album to come out and I hope it's, it's in the lines of like in my like top five Sondheim maybe. Nice. Yeah. It's one of, it's something I felt like I wanted to see again after I saw it the first time, just cause it's such like a, you're, I, I just feel like you're not going to get it all the first time, no matter what. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And especially like just the amount of wordplay, like hearing different people talk mm. about it. I'm like, oh my goodness. Yeah. But it goes by so quickly. Yeah. I Musically, it's it's got to have some exciting wild stuff to analyze in it. Um, mm. It's kind of 
to me, it's a lot more like Sunday in the park than a lot of other things. So, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, I didn't see it again. And I was thinking I would just, you know, wait for the cast album to come out, even though it obviously there's not so much of that show is the book scene. So it's not going to be the exact same, but it'll at least refresh my memory of what I saw and at least let me and let others dive deeper into it. Sondheim has, I think, a great way of, oh, this is really kind of juxtapositions and pointed and weird. And here's a really beautiful love song that you are (laughs) surprised about and how beautiful it is from like the cynical surrealist place. (laughs) Yeah. Well, unfortunately, the cast album will not capture the bear. (laughs) Oh, my. I forgot about it last time. And oh, my goodness. And the lighting for it and makes it so realistic. Yeah. Everybody in the audience just cracking up. I'm like, what is going on? (laughs) Um, Yeah, at least I can just hold that in my memory. Uh, Who is your favorite musical theater composer? I mean, Sondheim, I have to, but especially when we think about composers, Mm -hmm. I'm somebody that goes in the realm and plays contemporary music on clarinet. And so I'm not as concerned with like, here is a hummable song and here is like a Tin Pan Alley style. Like, and I, and I also appreciate like Milton Babbitt told Sondheim, like, no, no, you don't have to go into this realm. You still can do new stuff with actual tonal songs and whatnot but that they're complicated but not they're super hard to do so it's impressive something i've been thinking a lot about more is that i think there's a weirdness of naturalism in sondheim because of how many of the songs are about each syllable matching up with a note or with a pitch Hmm. so it's not somebody belting or riffing or a melisma or whatnot but it's like, oh, this is somebody speaking in music time hmm. as opposed to other time. And there's exceptions to that, of course, but like, I don't know, maybe that's part of it too. I'm like, oh, Sondheim is maybe more realistic musical to me, but maybe that's me cynical. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is your favorite lyric line in musical theater? I just love this turn of phrase from A Little Priest and Sweeney Todd. Such a nice plump frame, what's his name, has had has (laughs) just that ending of had or has had has like so much goes on in those three words right and to just have it as a lyric you're like huh that's very cute (laughs) um and then my my second has to be because i have to mention it because i'm the tv musicals guy um all those secrets you've been concealing say you're happy now once more with feeling Mm-hmm. It's the wonderful appropriation of that phrase, but also like puts a pin on the musical episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer in that whole thing. Like it's a episode where they don't defeat the bad guy. I forgot that was the actual line because when my friends and I used to go to the Buffy musical sing along like live show, you know, there was like interaction with the audience similar to Rocky Horror and when that li- when that line came on, we would scream over it like, "Say the title now, once more with feeling." Um, so I forgot that it was something <laughs> that there was another line there. <laughs> well, I that's awesome. I never got to go to one of those, and then Fox like shut them down. But yeah, that's, that's really fun. I like that. Yeah, it was really sad when they went away, but yeah, I, and maybe this is a a good moment to talk about Hinton Battle 
since he was the uh played the demon in that episode uh just recently passed away at age i think it was 67 in the buffy up musical episode also in the original cast of the whiz and miss saigon no i'm probably you know the weirdo that's like oh i was introduced to him via buffy Mm -hmm. but being able to go into his work and his legacy and i mean the whiz being this kind of really huge musical and and I think, you know, now that it's going on Broadway soon and whatnot, like it's building up more and more. Um and just getting to read more about the stuff that he did and uh I think it was a really big thing for them to get him for Buffy. Yeah. I mean, somebody who's that talented and has that much kind of gravitas, but that's what you would who you would want to be a demon that causes everybody to sing and dance. Um, and then, you know, just, I, you know, just reading the things about like, I think he started his own dance company. He did all this other stuff. And it was like really kind of building a huge legacy for himself. So, yeah. Um, as I was thinking about this, I'm like, this just happened. And I, I haven't seen many Buffy people talk about it. I've seen all the musical theater people talk about it. I'm like, no, no, you all need to realize what just happened. Right. Well, it's, it's funny because um, I was introduced to him and his work through Miss Saigon. Cause as a kid, I was a huge Miss Saigon fan. I remember him winning the Tony award and his speech and, and all of that. So when, you know, I saw him on the Buffy musical episode, I knew exactly who he was when we did the sing along, uh, I would always scream when he his at his entrance, I would always scream hint in battle to try and get that as like an audience participation thing. Nobody else did that. But I, I tried to make uh, that happen to like have that be hint in battle at his entrance. But um, yeah, so that that was if, if people were in the those audiences there and heard that that was that was me and just me. Oh, I'm going to try to think of it next time I watch the episode because that's one great entrance and then to have like a callback for it would also be fun. Cool. Well, let's move into our topic, which is the show Little Shop of Horrors. And um, we were talking about this uh, a little bit before, but I just I find it so fascinating that um, so many people want to talk about this show in various ways. Uh, I really think this show you could talk about there's so much to talk about with it and it i really think it's it's a fascinating show in terms of just our our musical theater canon and you know it's since it just it seems to hold a special place for a lot of people and be about so many things and what has been your experience with this show uh so i don't remember when but my first experience was the film yeah. Um, and I, that's, I remember seeing it and I don't remember what my like initial response was. Um, I just I think I enjoyed it. I think I really was fascinated like with the puppeteering and the practical effects. I may have seen it already having known a bit about the Muppets. So like already kind of being on board with Frank Oz and being like, Oh, Frank Oz directed something. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, it might have also been like growing up at a certain time, Rick Moranis was in everything. Yeah. And I saw all those like Honey, I Shrunk the Kid movies when I was a kid. So, like, 
Um, and he's, I think, fantastic. And having gone back over his past work, but then going into like, you know, his role in Ghostbusters and those things like, oh, like you, you were a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think in college, my college uh, did a stage version of it. So it was the first time I experienced or even knew about the stage version and that there were differences. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, this is interesting. And that opened up the like, oh, there's an alternative ending, which was the original ending. Um, and so that footage was kind of like leaked online on YouTube and still kind of around, but they did release a director's cut net then of the actual ending of the film, which come to find out a few months ago that that was like a limited release. And now it's like hundreds of dollars to find a copy. Wow. But that director's cut is one that I really appreciate because it's, I understand the the discourse around um, having the ending changed and like the, you know, brief kind of information of Frank Oz being like, it's what they wanted. Uh, at the end of a stage musical, everybody comes out and bows, but at the end of a film, they don't. And so it seems really drastic and final. And I think there's something to be said about like the underlying kind of fears and anxieties that Little Shop of Horrors kind of goes into maybe not for everybody, but for like, to me, it's like very 80s Reaganomics kind of like anxiety about class and race. Um, and then I was very lucky that I got ticket, uh, ticket a ticket for Ellen Green when she and Jake Gyllenhaal performed at the Encores Off Center. And it is one of those, like I read one of the reviews and it's like, this is one of those nights you will lie and say you were there. I was like, well, I was there. And, but it was like the declared last time that she was ever going to do Audrey. So I was like, oh, like that's a heartbreaking role. Um, and the, I mean, I could probably do a whole episode of just the experience of that. Um, I didn't know if we were ever going to leave because every time she did anything, there would be like five minutes of applause. Those all experiences kind of all go in together. Plus, like, multiple viewings of the film. I've seen the stage production a few times at, like, summer camps and community theater. I know people who have played Audrey, too, as the puppeteering parts. Um, and then uh, just all this stuff, it just always, it's. I always say it's my number two favorite musical, so. I saw a college production as well as, I think, my first time seeing it fully on stage. Uh, but I had seen the movie as a young person and I think I said in the previous episode that uh we did on Little Shop of Horrors it was not my favorite show a favorite movie um I mean as a kid it scared me but as I said before I think it was really more the dentist than the plant aspect I think the dentist is a weird scary character and especially in the movie and I love dentists. This has nothing to do with him being a dentist. <laughs> but it's just the it's just the um the violence, I think, with him and the way he's acting, his you know, his behavior as a dentist. But uh and as a boyfriend. <laughs> yes. That's interesting because I think a lot of people who don't like dentists 
would have a reaction. But the fact that you say that, because I was, you know, I was thinking as you were talking, I'm like, you know, one of the things I did have growing up was like a really child friendly dentist. So I've never been like super scared. Then especially in the film, it's walking a really fine line between like really violent and like slapsticky, which I think is where Steve uh, Martin really kind of nailed it. And then having seen the original film, uh, and I'm going to forget the the director's name. Oh, Corman. But seeing the original film, I mean, that's a trip in itself. But that that kind of dynamic between Steve Martin as the dentist and uh, Bill Murray is from that with Jack Nicholson as the patient. <laughs> and I, I think it's that part is really interesting to me as I got older because of the weird, like, uh, Oh, I forget. It's like a sexuality panic because somebody who's a sadist, but there's a man who is enjoying the sadism. Who's a masochist. And so now I'm a sadist, but I'm actually causing somebody pleasure by being a sadist. So I'm not being a sadist anymore. And so that, that character just gets really wilded out. Um, and that's played up a lot in the Corman movie, not in the stage version. Um, and then back in the film, and I'm like, break Oz, why did you do that? That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, I think for me, like, it was, it is that line. It is that kind of tone that they strike with him that is was very unsettling to me as a kid. And I, I think that is, like, that whole... Like this is this is weird and violent and scary, but but also fun. And I like I I think I just didn't I I couldn't get on board with it or or whatever it was. And I mean, this is uh, another one of my like many thoughts around Little Shop of Horrors is I think so much of the show really tries to show, but also disguises the cycle of abuse that Audrey is in mm. and the ways that we think she's doing better. And to me, her hooking up with Seymour and whatnot, and then the original stage ending and the film and the director's cut ending, it's still part of that cycle of abuse. And then like, you know, we'll get to this when we talk about somewhere that's green, but mm. that's why I cry more at that song. Cause it's such a sad song. Cause it's somebody who's not able to break out of a cycle of abuse. Let's talk about the, film version versus the stage version in terms of what musical numbers are in the film version versus the stage version. So one of the things, and this is why I really wanted to like, one of the reasons I like to talk about Little Shop is there's a lot going on in terms of race and class in the show that have manifested in a lot of different ways. And I think partially that's the film version kind of really brings them to the forefront. Um, and part of that is obviously when you're making a film, you can't do every single number. And to me, it's, it's very much like every, almost every book number is cut out of the, the show. And what's left is you get this kind of musical narrative from Dadu, which is like doo-wop, to the original song written for the film, which is Mean Green Mother from Outer Space, which starts to really get into funk. And so it's this kind of like, as much of American popular music, 
the history of American popular music exploiting and taking from African Americans and black people. And then funk being kind of the more radical, like, uh, black resistance to aspects of popular music. And like, we're going to embrace funk and, and this kind of idea. And so the film does a really good job of that because there's nothing buffering between them. Like Mm. call me call back in the morning and that kind of stuff. I was walking in the wholesale flower district that day. And I passed by this place where this old Chinese man sometimes sells me weird and exotic cuttings because he knows you see that strange plants are my hobby he didn't have anything unusual there that day so i was just about to you know walk on by when suddenly and without warning there was this And then another part that's added is when Seymour is about to, like at the plant shop, he's like, oh, there's nothing here, nothing new. And he walks away and he starts about to join in with an acapella group on the corner, which was like a normal tradition that people would sing acapella on corners. It was part of a community thing and all these. And he starts joining in. And this is where my dorky music side comes in. But then the total eclipse of the sun happens. And that's when we get the first introduction of the electric organ. Mm -hmm. And that's when Audrey 2 shows up. And so we get this, like, he could be natural and just sing with people. Or now he's going to go to Audrey 2 and the supernatural and the out of space. But also uh, embracing, like, sort of this kind of, like, history of rock and roll or one of the histories of rock and roll kind of things. Um, all that's to say is that it's the, because the film version has all those book numbers removed. I think one of the reasons that mean green mother from outer space is so effective is because now it starts to break through all of that stuff. And mm. I mean, the puppeteering and everything is amazing. And, but then you get like, Oh, it, now Seymour's gonna like have to deal with things mm-hmm. and uh, so to me that's that's one of the really interesting things about between the stage and film versions uh, and then you know you get to do this with film because you have more access to musicians and, and whatnot and you don't have to use people for everything but that electric organ or like jazz organ as it's sometimes called like on a Casio keyboard <laughs> just becomes the thing that we start hearing when Audrey too is rearing their ugly head mm. and doing things and pulling strings. 
Um, so it becomes almost like a leitmotif kind of deal. Yeah. So, so in the show, in the stage version, it's just, you don't get that through line as clearly. Well, you don't have the one song, but you're also having all these more musical theater style numbers that pop in and out as well. Yeah. And I think, I think you can hear it and see it and, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. To me, the reason I was thinking of or getting to this is trying to make sense about why re- audience reactions to the ending were so intense. Mm. And just like, if you have a narrative of music that also tells a story in addition to the story itself, I can see that being like part of the reaction of like, well, like, you know, this was just like popular music and that's weird. And we don't want this to be relatable. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas the more kind of book numbers are not things you would like hear on the radio. Right. And like Dadu is not something necessarily you'd hear on the radio, but it's got those elements of like, uh, doo-wop and, and those kind of thing. I mean, it is part doo-wop, so. Um, so it was me trying to figure out, like, why did people really react to that ending mm. and love the rest of it so much? Because that's the thing. It was like, it wasn't that it was mediocre. It was they loved everything and then the ending really threw everybody. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've seen the ending on YouTube. Um, it's wild. Or the original uh, yeah. ending they filmed it's wild i mean like when you see something like that in the theater it almost feels like normal <laughs> in a way because like that's what theater does you know mm-hmm. but on film it's like what wait what <laughs> what am i watching here but it's i mean in line with what we've been what the movie has been it's not it's not like a huge departure but i still think it's it feels like wow we're in some uh, different territory here in a way. Well, I, I mean, it, it gets a hint of the like Shakespeare last act syndrome where mm-hmm. people start dropping like flies. Yeah. And um, that's, you know, not the best feeling for some people, but I think because, and if I remember right, it's one of the things about little shop is that I think that like the libretto says explicitly act as though these are real people. Mm-hmm. This is camp. This is wild. And you are having this real actual response to everything. So it's, it's, you know, camp is that complicated world, but that Audrey is not like a blonde bimbo. Audrey is a real person who just happens to look in, and and in the film, like a blonde bimbo, but actually feels those feelings. And it's like reacting to all this stuff as a person would. Right. They're not characters. Um, and so that just makes it even more real when something darker happens and you're like, wait a minute, mm-hmm. this is a musical. And even though they, there were a bunch of things about morality in it, I didn't expect this to happen. <laughs> yeah. Say more about the Reaganism of <laughs> in the, in the show and, and film. Um, I mean, that all stems for me in, uh, Skid Row, because mm-hmm. Skid Row, I mean, it's a wonderful, it's, I mean, I could name all of them almost as like favorite songs, but Skid Row sets so much of the stage and it shows the desperation in Seymour and Audrey. They want a way to get out of there. It becomes a like, you get what you wish for. 
mm-hmm. in a certain sense. They just want to get out. Well, they do. And it's not the way they wanted to. Right. Um, in the film, you know, some people might not like it. I really appreciate that because it's film, it can be expanded. And so instead of having like the limited amount of cast that is in the stage version, mm-hmm. which makes sense, you, you're not going to hire a bunch of people just to be extras and sing in one number. Right. But you have this whole Skid Row community and they don't have ideal singing voices. Mm-hmm. And the miking and the sound design will emphasize different people who are on screen and whatnot. But you hear a variety of pitchiness, a variety of accents, a variety of if they're singing or not singing. And so you really get this like, everybody is in the same boat and everybody feels terrible. And this is skid row. This is you know, very clearly an economic thing. And how uh, you know, the Greek chorus, the street urchins, talk about, um, you know, you go uptown, this is all the work we do for everybody else, and then we come back here where it's terrible. Um, and that combined with, there's a kind of a realm of theory and study about, like, nature being something that will, like, sort of, like, self-correct things. Mm-hmm. And so this anxiety of things that grow out of control, Audrey too, and that the people of the lower classes will grow out of control and upset the order of things. Mm -hmm. And so I think, especially going to the end of the beginning, you know, in the seemingly most innocent and unlikely of places, it's also the place where the upper classes have the most anxiety of where uprising is going to (laughs) happen. Right. Um, And so it's, it's, it's that stuff. And just like, because in the film you get all those people and everybody is then this huge wide shot and singing and it's a huge number then at that point when everything else then is very small you don't get a lot of huge things after that there's some montages but like until you get to like the director's cut ending you don't see a lot of people on screen at the same time Mm -hmm. (laughs) and that just sets the stage of like this is a this is a social problem and this is a social issue and now we're going to talk about the tragedy of these people who are trying to get out Right, so, and the Reaganism part then is like how those aspects were kind of economically defined, how people didn't have you know, less and less safety nets. Um, but then, like the, the idea that you need to kind of capitalize in on something, and so Audrey too being that like quick ticket to capitalism, succeeding in capitalism, um, and just that kind of stuff of like there's an anxiety like from those classes, something could come out that can destroy us all. Mm -hmm. Um, So we need to keep them down. We need to, uh, you know, come up with the idea of the welfare welfare queen Mm -hmm. that people don't have sympathy for people on Skid Row. Yeah. Do you think like with the original ending of the plant's, taking over the earth do you think like i i think pre-pandemic i would have been like yeah and that would affect everybody that would affect they would get everybody but now that we see that in a society where we do have close class structure even something that affects everybody affects 
people differently. And so now I wonder like what that ending is. Yeah. Like what it looks like for everybody, like each class <laughs> for the classes, like what does it look, what does that ending look like on Skid Row versus Uptown? Are they all affected in the same way? I mean, it's kind of looks like it does, but in the movie or in the um, stage show and in the alternative ending of the movie. But yeah, if we're, if we're thinking about it in this way, like, does that, does, how does it actually manifest? That's a really interesting question because of, especially considering things as post height of COVID pandemic. Um, and I, my, it, 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 I'm almost like sad that I like thought of a response because I would like to ponder it more. Yeah, yeah. I think though the response like in Don't Feed the Plants, I always thought it was interesting that they're like, you know, it's attacking Peoria and, and like all these places mm-hmm. and start naming these cities and then New York and this theater in the stage version. Yeah. So it, it is trying to put a blanket on everything. And New York is definitely like, and New York's the city of all cities. But I think also, I mean, it, it does beg the question of, are would somebody who is higher upper class or super rich, would they have been tempted to go buy an Audrey too to become even more rich? Mm-hmm. Because that would then determine if it's going to grow out of control and eat them. And I think it might be that they would because it's painting that idea as everybody has this sort of uh, draw to it and gets into this moral dilemma and then takes it. They're mm-hmm. like, oh, I can start feeding it blood because things are going better. And even if somebody's already at, there's, I guess, like the limitations, there's no limitations on greed. Mm-hmm. So, but... You know, if they hear what's going on and they didn't buy Naughtry 2, then they're in a bunker. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Um, but I think Audrey 2 is a little bit uh, persistent. There's not really a lot of things that stop Audrey 2. <laughs> right. It is saying something that Audrey 2, the first Audrey 2, when it comes down to Earth, comes to an area that is like Skid Row. That is Skid Row. Mm-hmm. That is where they're going to, somebody is going to pick it up and it's going to be able to feed from that desperation. Yeah. Yeah. Very intentional. And yeah, exactly. Feed off desperation. And that's, um, Seymour's full of it and Mm -hmm. everybody else kind of feeds into it. And then I I never know if Audrey too has magic powers or not. Mm Mm-hmm. Because just like, oh, let's put it in the window and then somebody shows up. That, like the person wasn't getting any benefits out of seeing Audrey 2, like mm-hmm. Seymour benefits. But it's like, what what does Audrey do have on other people who aren't desperate? And I mean, that would be another point to think about this. Like right. people who come from uptown to Skid Row, to that floral shop to buy stuff now. Right. So they're the ones that are able to feed it even more because they're coming in with the money right it's all it's all one system i guess and then in the end it's usually the residents of skid row who get 
who always get the short end of the stick. Well, and I, and I will say like, especially as we talk about this, there was a, there's a really good book and I think it just came out in paperback and it's called the viral underclass. Mm-hmm. It's just another book of all these things about how, you know, things like natural disasters. And in this case, um, the author is talking about HIV and COVID how it just exacerbates and shows all of these social fractures and who pays the price quite literally pays more of the price people who are poor poverty, working class, because it's very expensive to be poor. So we've talked about class a lot, but what about also the race element? Um, and so this is where I think, you know, not to conflate class and race, although sometimes that happens and people do that. It's also a thing of for me, so the movie, whenever you do a film, you kind of lock an idea, an image of a character in people's minds. And so that's why, you know, I think there's so much discourse about like, oh, is Audrey going to be blonde? What mm-hmm. act is she going to do? Because, I mean, Ellen Green was part of the original stage production and in the film, which is really rare but exciting. But what choices do you make outside of that? How do you get away from that? And how do you justify them? And then uh, what I think, uh, like Seymour being this kind of like dorky glasses, sweater vest character, I think there's a lot of stuff going on, um, especially in the stage version with how Mushnik, Mr. Mushnik is characterized as Jewish Hmm. and those stereotypes and how Mm -hmm. those are a little bit uncomfortable about like, relationship to money um and then in the film levi stubbs is the voice of audrey too so we get this kind of uh thing going on where what i've noticed is that especially who voices audrey too tends to be in some of these major productions somebody who is other Mm -hmm. so in this case levi stubbs is other because he's a black man then there's like a juxtaposition about I'm a mean green mother from outer space. Well, is that saying Audrey too is a woman or a mother effer? Cause I think both interpretations are there. Um, but it's voiced by a man for, I think a lot of people probably think that Audrey too is a man up until that point. Um, in the other versions I've seen. So like, one version on a summer camp I worked at, the person who was like the most visibly queer mm-hmm. um, and actually queer, I think too, but like they were Audrey too. Um, I've seen where people try to find a place for somebody who uses a wheelchair and they become Audrey too. Mm-hmm. Disability is the other. Um, and I've also seen like there's a big uh, revival version in the UK where they called a drag queen from LA to come and do it. And mm-hmm. drag queen, this idea of gender bending and they didn't use a puppet. It was just the drag queen in Audrey to drag. Mm. Um, but getting back to the race elements, uh, then you have kind of the debate that's been going on about how, especially in the current revival, which I've also seen and it was, it's fantastic, but that it wasn't, I was looking this up earlier. It wasn't until the 2023 that there was actually a full-time black Audrey. Hmm. Um, and that people were calling for it. People were like, what's going on? There would be people who would fill in. 
but never be hired as the permanent replacement for that next set of dates and whatnot. Um, and that people are, I think, tied to the idea that Audrey is a blonde white bimbo. Yeah. Um, but also, I think there's then the dynamics of like, well, how then do you handle the street urchins? Right. And how do they work? And um, nobody's arguing that there needs to be like white street urchins, but people, but that's because uh, double standards about race and whatnot and, mm-hmm. and the desirability of things. Um, and so one of the things that, one of the images that really ties this together to explain it kind of in a short way is in the Encores Off Center, they didn't, it was a stage reading. And so they had minimal set and the plant, Audrey 2, was initially played by like a young black boy holding like a little potted plant that looked very mm. cute. Um, and as the Audrey 2 would grow, um, uh, I'm terrible with names. Eddie Cooper, I think, was playing, who was fantastic, then would show up, kind of showed up in like a green suit and was like sitting in a chair to like show stationariness but like a wheelie chair so you can move around. Mm-hmm. And again, though, it was a black man or a visibly black man playing Audrey too. And then as it's going on, uh, Audrey too is growing more and more. And the final scene with Audrey too is uh, the character is wearing a huge green fur coat over top of the suit, mm. which I think you know, I, I think might be bias on my part, whatnot, but I think it, it starts to read as like a pimp coat in a certain sort of sense. It's kind of this big decadence yeah. and to be, do like a big fur coat for a plant seems like an interesting choice because I don't associate plants with fur. Right. Um, but it then makes the dynamics of Audrey to preying on Audrey even more about the anxieties because Audrey 2 is characterized as other, primarily black. Then you have Audrey 2 trying to go after the nice white woman. And that ties into all the anxieties of like black men are out to get our women um, or black women are out to get white women. Mm-hmm. And those things are, I think, at play for a lot of people, especially if the film was their first thing that they saw. There's an image from Encores Off Center that I saved on my computer because whenever I write an article or book about this, it'll be, but it is like, you know, Audrey too reaching for Audrey, Audrey as Ellen Green in like a white dress looking scared, Eddie Cooper in this huge green fur coat going after her. Right. Um, And musically, that supper time, Samanex part, you know, it's, especially in the film, it's very, like, it's very uh, sexualized. Mm-hmm. The Audrey 2 is pawing at her, like, hey, little lady, hello. It's, it's very much, like, I'm trying to seduce you, but also I don't care if you want it. Right. <laughs> um, and, and so it, it, there's so much, this is where it's like, you know, I think people can watch that and be like, oh, it's a monster attacking Audrey to Audrey. And then when you think about it, it's, it collapses so fast. Like, no, this is like the makings of a sexual assault. And so that's where I think like some of the depictions of race then 
especially as we go into the film, need to be thought of a lot more, um, especially in terms of like casting, but also if it's this musical narrative of the exploitation of black people's musics and, and also going into the realm of Motown, like we like black people to be the most controlled physically. So the organized dance movements of the street urchins as the Greek chorus. So that whole race records aspect is part of that. And like, Oh, but now we're going to get to funk music where for maybe a primarily white audience is not going to understand the radicalness and where that goes. It's, it's something that I don't see addressed much aside from when people are pointing out like, Hey, why don't we have a black Audrey? Why don't we have a black Seymour? Why don't we have anybody else other than white people do these roles? And there have been some, but like in the United States, we're just not able to deal with the legacy of slavery. And it just keeps showing up in these things too. It's like, Oh, we're going to be resistant to a black Audrey. No, we don't have, we won't have one. Yeah, I think it was, yeah, just recently in the last couple of years, there was that production in Los Angeles as well that had uh Jay rodriguez yeah 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 as as audrey and then i guess just recently i mean constance Wu also uh played audrey very recently uh so yeah i guess it's like we're just starting to come around to like oh what would it look like <laughs> but it's i guess it's more than what would it look like and more and also just like what what does that what does that do to the story? Because these race relations seem kind of baked in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, well, in another part, uh, this is a subtle one and one that I just recently learned about. So in somewhere that's green, I think that, or like the intro part, Audrey talks about a nice place like Levittown. Mm-hmm. And recently I was learning, cause we're always learning that, Levittown, like the many of them that are around, person Levitt was very intentional to not let non-white people in those mm-hmm. towns and communities. He wouldn't give them deeds. He wouldn't sell houses to them. And so like even Audrey being like a nice place like Levittown, it's like you're dreaming of like a white utopia. Right. Whether or not she knows it or not or has that intention. But I mean, that's intentional to talk about Levittown. That was a choice. This is one of those like written in the 80s, looking back at the 50s, commenting on the 50s and trying to make parallels to the 80s type of type oh, yeah. of writing. So, yeah, it feels that feels very intentional for sure. To bring this all back to the dentist, like there's so many threats in this show at like in terms of like the the plan and like uh the danger, like the metaphors and what we've been talking about with like capitalism and, and all that. And I'm wondering where the, how does the dentist fit into this? Like, what is, what is his threat? What is his threat in terms of like race and class? Is he he part of this (laughs) or is he just scared me? (laughs) So I'm, I, for those who are listening, I am smiling very highly, very largely right now, because this is another realm. And this is one of the things that I do wish was in the film, is in the stage version, when Oren dies, Seymour 
then shows up later with his leather jacket and tries to wear it as to impress Audrey. Mm. And then she's like, ah, no, like, I don't want to deal with that. Um, and I'm not sure exactly how I might directly start talking about things in terms of race and class. If those things, how those things can be separated. Although class wise, dentist who's earning a lot of money and that's the reason Audrey's with him, but also serving the residents of Skid Row. And so like in a weird space of living off of the safety net that might be going on for people on Skid Row. Although it's, I don't know if his office is in Skid Row. I think that's mm-hmm. kind of interesting. Um, but he's willing to go down there and he doesn't seem to have any issue or problem with it. Gender-wise, Seymour is having this kind of huge crisis of masculinity and everybody he feeds to the plant is part of that. Mm. So Oren is that like macho, actually abusive, that idea of masculinity. And in when he comes back with the leather jacket in the stage version, he's he's literally trying it on. He's putting it on for Audrey, thinking, you'll like me now. Um, and then Mushnik is the successful businessman, successful because of Audrey too, but like, and also the father figure. So let's add Freud to the mix. Um, and then getting to Audrey, then the love interest. And so it's all these things going on. And to me, Audrey too, after I started taking some gender studies classes, it's hard for me not to see it as something that's a mix between a vulva and a penis and the gender ambiguity of a mean green mother from outer space and how that's introduced, but also feed me. I, the Audrey too lives off blood and becomes engorged and larger with it. <laughs> and so Oren to me is one of the things that Seymour subsumes to try to be the person that he thinks Audrey wants, mm-hmm. which is all like, it's all caught up in like, Oh, if I stop, being successful will Audrey like me? And that comes to like the meek shall inherit. That's the main like, oh, but if I kill the plant or leave the plant, she won't like me anymore. So then he signs the contracts. Right. Um, and so to me, that's that's how, you know, very misled, but like he's seeing Audrey with this abusive, terrible person. And... Uh, you know, psychoanalysts might be like, well, now he's going to subsume that into his identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something I, I think it's where points get knocked off for me for suddenly Seymour is uh, she's talking about like, nobody ever treated me kindly. Um, people just told me what to do. Seymour's first lyrics are just telling her what to do. Pick up your head, wash off your mascara. He's telling her what to do. He's already stepping into that role. Which is why she's not out of the cycle of abuse. And it's just, to me, that then Oren's part of that. Like, you know, he just takes the place of Oren. He's just nicer. It doesn't physically hurt her until he feeds her to the plant at the end of the stage and director's cut. And it's probably why I prefer the film ending (laughs) because it even though uh you know 
I think it's not the ending that the writers wanted. It's just, mm. it comes at maybe falsely, but, or it calms the anxiety in a way. Like our characters, uh, she's getting what she wants is she's getting her dream. There's a little Audrey too living out front, but you know, whatever. <laughs> so they're alive. They're happy together for now. Like we can just relax for a few minutes. <laughs> and is she out of the cycle of abuse? Time will tell, you know? Well, and I think that's where the ending, the, theatrical release still is subversive in that and it, it is you know very that common like we're in the 80s gonna critique the 50s or really just any time after the 50s critiquing the 50s that it is all artificial it is mm-hmm. cartoony there's astroturf like it is a fantasy and yeah maybe a relief it might be calming and then it's like but they're like in a barbie dream home <laughs> <laughs> Well, cool. Let's move on to diving deeper into Somewhere That's Green for our Why Is This So Good section. So why did you pick this song for Why Is This So Good? Uh, We're talking about Little Shop of Horrors today. And honestly, it's one of the songs that is pretty guaranteed that if I listen to it, I will cry. Um, And it's because I've spent a long time thinking about especially Audrey's character and the cycle of abuse and how kind of like the tragedy of Seymour's moral choices, but also like the real tragedy of like all Audrey has is hope. And she's, uh, you know, whatever the term innocent means, she's innocent in many of much of this. And, um, it's also been something when I think about like having an I want song and having that emotional center that helps drive the narrative in a musical, but then the lyrics deceive things. So her like wanting a huge, enormous 12 inch screen. And today that's laughable in terms of like people have like 78 inch screens, but even back then, like, like, it's it's she, the song is so bittersweet because she's even limited in her dreams and at first you might hear it and you're like this is funny ha 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 and then you're like no she's just like she's got better homes and gardens that is what's shaping what she thinks life could be and that's all she has because she doesn't have access to other things with like the cartoon bird that comes in it makes it even more cartoonish and weird um 
And I think, you know, there's the obvious connections to Over the Rainbow. It's an I Want song. It's I Want to Go Somewhere That's a Specific Color. Um, And I think what going back to Book of Mormon, Salt Lake City is definitely an homage to Somewhere That's Green um, because that character cannot dream past what the reality holds for her because that's all that's there. And it's a set of really terrifying, horrible circumstances. Um, And then it is just such a pretty song. It's so kind of like uh, well put together. There's really interesting dynamic choices, um, especially at the end where it's sort of like going down the piano and then growing a little bit and then going back down where in the film, it kind of makes sense because you've got this like pan out. So your, your moving perspective is going with the dynamics, but on stage, it is just mesmerizing because you're like, wait a minute, they're taking us on a journey just in one note in dynamics. <laughs> um, and then, uh, I mean, the, one of the things too is in, this is what, this is one of the big reasons I wish I, and I like the director's cut and the stage version is there is a reprise of somewhere that's green and it then kind of like goes into the background and then turns a little bit, if I remember right into skid row, the music from skid row, but it's Audrey when she's injured by Audrey too. And, um, uh, this is where I pull out my libretto because I got my libretto out. So Seymour says, and this is where we get the cycle of abuse again. I, I've done terrible things, but not to you, never to you. And Audrey's response, but I want you to, Seymour. And then he talks about that she's going to die soon and sing Somewhere That's Green, which is all about that she's going to go to the green plant, Audrey too, and that she's going to be part of the plant, which means she'll be with Seymour. And to me, that is one of the saddest parts of a musical I've seen, where she's just given up, she's given in. She might not even have been thinking about fighting through a cycle, but she's just like, no, this is, I want, this is how I express love to be destroyed. And um, one of the weirdest stage directions is a part of this, where she's supposed to be fed to Audrey too in Wagnerian splendor. And all of the things that Richard Wagner brings into this, uh, you know, completely different kind of episode. But to mention that and have that in the stage direct, like, hum, because this idea that love conquers mortality and all this other stuff, but like also incredibly misogynistic and problematic and anti-Semitic and racist. and, (laughs) And then just like, it's just so sad. And so, I mean, why is it so good? It's such a well-put-together, smart song that I think, to me, is aesthetically really pretty and beautiful. And meaning-wise, it is so sad. And it's the heart of Audrey and Audrey being the heart of the show. I was thinking about this um, also in terms of, like, how it, you know, people say it's, sounds so much like um the little mermaid song part of your world 
and he like must have taken uh, you know lifted from that for from this song for that song and it I was thinking about just how that also must be part of why maybe people from my generation like love this song so much is because it it sonically musically it connects to that as well like it must have some type of I mean it's that that yearning uh it's almost like a childlike yearning for this other world that we were first introduced to in the little mermaid that is also this basically this song in a much darker adult way but it still has like that childlike so like when i hear this song of course i'm also hearing part of your world um and uh, that those associations i think that's a really good point um especially because at least for like my age group bracket little uh little mermaid little shop or little mermaid uh was probably what i saw first and I was trying to look up to see if, like, I think Ashman and Mencken actually, like, at one point gave, like, a definition of an I Want song. Um, but between Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin, um, you know, for a large group of us, I think that idea of an I Want, I Want song is all influenced by the same sort of aesthetic. And there are aspects to all I want songs that make it that category, but yeah, it, it is like it is that. And I'm I'm wondering, the ending of part of your world is also quiet. It's not like a big mm-hmm. bombast. That part of you. Oh, I'm not gonna sing on tape. Right. Um, world. <laughs> and it's you know that's one of those things that I think somewhere that Green also does really well is that she gets to that last note and then it crescendos and day crescendos because it's like fading up and out um but like how intimate that last part is it's not like mm. i'm putting on a show because i want these things it's no, this right. is what i truly want Yeah, I also just wanted to talk about 
the rhyme scheme a little bit because I just find it so interesting that in the uh, the two lines leading up to somewhere that's green, uh, the there's the rhyme with green machine ironing machine and green, but he also has the in the track house that we share somewhere that's green. He's also like creating that internal rhyme with like you're because then in the next verse it's the pine salt scented air somewhere that's green like he doesn't that part doesn't have to be the same rhyme but it is because he's creating the internal rhyme with air and somewhere and share and somewhere um which i and i just it's just something to note i just really love that because i feel like it hits your ear so well that that share would be there but then air would also be there in the next verse um and then there's the clean and green line. But then at the end, that that part where we're that we're talking about that gets really quiet, it's not there. They have the magazine and green rhyme, but then you have like the there's a different rhyme there. The far from skid row, I dream will go. It's the rhyme is not on the somewhere, it's on the actual uh we're gonna go. I I yeah, I don't know. I just I just really love the the change and how it's set up in one way that I love. And then it goes into that kind of a little coda at the end there. That's a different rhyme. Uh, Cause they're going, she's going somewhere else there. Yeah. I think, uh, I mean, spoken by somebody who knows a lot about writing musicals, <laughs> um, but yeah, that rhymes, especially that part at the end, I dream will go and to, have that be the rhyme but also if the rhyme is indicative of like a sort of rhythmic accent to the ear of some sort it's Mm -hmm. then shortening the phrase but also slowing it down because it's it's slowing down so we know that it's also coming to an end because it's like and here we go yeah (laughs) hearing those internal rhymes to the lines and then some of the stuff i had myself had to look up and so, mm-hmm. you know, not necessarily being the perfect audience, but especially I'm his December bride. He's father. He knows best. Mm-hmm. And December bride. Um, and just he's father. He knows best. Like it's all that, that to me has always been two of one of the lines where it's, she's really putting herself as like the last resort for Seymour. Mm. And that, subservient to him and then it goes back to like all the references like howdy doody and better homes and gardens but like it that to me has always been a sad line and oh and that i mean in the film when she's like showing the toaster like vanna white she's like the toaster is here i have a toast and how much that is like having those things around it makes life easier it makes life different and we might be like, ha toaster, but that's coming. Like if I'm saying that or found humor in that and I have, it's because toasters are regular for my growing up. And yeah. Then when I became an adult, it's like, oh, I have to buy a toaster. Yeah. that's. It doesn't come with the house. <laughs> um, but it seems so every day and it's making a point that it's not every day to her. And right. that's one of those moments. So then as myself as an audience member to be like, oh, what is every day to me kind of deal? Yeah. 
Well, cool. Well, let's move on to our final section. Uh, something wonderful, just something uh, musical theater related that we are excited about uh, or want to give a shout out to. Uh, I mean, I feel like this has been a couple episodes and it was the season six finale. Um, but I'm really looking forward to the whiz. That's the next big thing I'm going to go see. I need to make my plans. Um, I'm super excited for it, uh, especially getting to read more about it and having never experienced the stage show. I'm really excited to get to experience it this sort of way. Um, all I know is yeah. the film and the film, learning more about the film history and all that stuff makes me really want to see and feel like I need to see the stage version to see and hear more of what's was supposed to go on in the film. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm excited to see that as well. Um, I feel like, uh, the weekend we're recording this, I have a very, I'm having a very once upon a mattress episode weekend because I saw once upon a mattress at encores this weekend. But also in that episode, we talked about how we were looking forward to Lara Benanti's uh, new show for audible. Um, and I'm seeing that tonight. So I'm excited about that. I also was uh, wanted to, I guess, give, give a shout out to, there was a TV show on Hulu last year called up here that I just watched. It's a, you know, a year old at this point, but almost, but uh, it was, it was very interesting. Uh, it's a musical uh, eight episodes and uh, written by uh, Bobby Lopez and Kristen Anderson Lopez, Stephen Levinson um, and, and others. But uh, yeah, it, it was, I, I think it's arguable the whether it's successful or not, that's not what I'm going to talk about. But I just thought it was just an interesting look at uh, just a musical TV series and what what one can look like now or an example of one now. I also thought there's actually some parallels between it and uh, A Strange Loop, just in terms of like in up here, it's they have uh, the two characters have thoughts that are talking to them constantly. And I just thought that was really interesting. I haven't seen anybody, at least I haven't seen anybody talk about that as not that having thoughts talk to you is like exclusively a strange loop thing, but uh, I just thought it was interesting in another musical, uh, contemporary musical uh, to have, uh, to have it be about uh, your, how your thoughts define you and your relationship with thoughts and how that affects your, how you go about in the world kind of thing. This more in the terms of like a relationship, but instead of a, a queer black man artist, but um, yeah. So I just thought that was really interesting and wanted to just talk about it. <laughs> so I just finished watching it. I definitely need to check it out then. I, I, and I might have said this in my previous episode, but I'm looking forward to whatever musical moments happen on Doctor Who in the upcoming season. <laughs> um, and there have already been like in the specials and then the uh, 
starting of the next this like the Christmas special for the next season or this season that's now going to start. There have been musical moments already. Having a gut feeling that there's going to be a lot more musical elements coming up, um, mm-hmm. and just what that's going to be like, and uh, getting to see somebody like Jinx Monsoon do those kind of things because yeah, she's definitely going to be. She's apparently one of the villains, and then. She will definitely be singing. She's got to be. She's dressed like a piano, so she's got to be. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Scene to Song. You can write to scenetosong at gmail.com with a comment or question about an episode or about musical theater, or if you'd like to be a podcast guest. Love this podcast? Help it find more listeners by rating it on Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. Follow on Instagram at Scene to Song, on Twitter or X at Scene Song, and on Facebook at Scene to Song with Shoshana Greenberg Podcast. Sign up for our monthly e-newsletter at scenetosong.substack.com and contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash song where you'll get bonus material from many of the episodes. The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald. And check back here in two weeks for our next episode.